Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be beginning what is going to be a series of episodes dedicated purely to exploring each decade of cinema, running from the 1920s all the way up to the 2010s. And for each episode, I shall be providing you with five of my top picks for each decade of film. And these are just my personal picks. Obviously, there are many, many more films within each decade, of course, for me personally, I found it very hard as we got later in. So I think around the mid 20th century, I found it very hard to pick my favourite ones and especially ones of recent times as well. But I particularly will enjoy this journey with you. I hope you enjoy it with me as well. And if you wanted to start out in film studies or you wanted to start looking into the history of film, this isn't a film history lesson. I'm not lecturing you on which ones to watch, but these are good ones to sort of get you started in your exploration into the world of cinema and the history of it all so these are just my picks but each episode i should be looking at my top five and then by the time we get to the last episode the 10th episode so the 2010s i will at the end give you a bonus like top 10 then shall we say and so there'll be an my top pick for each of my decades episodes so for instance i'll take number one from each episode and that will go into my top 10 and then i'll make that into a final overall top 10 films of all time as it stands obviously this will probably change somewhere down the line as we get through into the 2020s but for now that will be my top 10 from the 1920s all the way up to the 2010s uh, i haven't included any examples from the 1900s or 1910s mainly because i'm not too familiar i'm only familiar with a few of them and also at the same time i think you know, it's easier to do a top 10 decades. Whilst I could have bumped a couple of them together, I think it was a lot easier to do it this way. So today's episode, I shall be looking at the 1920s. I've got five films for you that I've got to recommend. And, you know, they're corkers. There's some good sort of ben benchmark films, I think. Some of you will know them if you're really hardcore film buffs. If not, don't worry. They're just here for your recommendation as well. I will sort of go into a few details here and there, but I won't be reviewing them as fully as I would if I had one whole episode to each film. Uh, but remember, obviously, before I continue, keep following us on the social medias, on Twitter and Instagram feeds. Uh, we will do polls and other things which will hopefully help us gauge your responses and maybe be included in future episodes, especially for these ones. So here we go, guys. The first pick, so number five in my top five of the 1920s. It's a film from 1927. Now, just a bit of context as well, 1927 Alan Crossland film this is. Now, a bit of context, the 1920s and obviously prior to the 1920s, we had a lot of films which were based around completely silent imagery. So they were called silent films, the silent film era. And we don't hear anything, as the title suggests, really, uh, because there was no sound at the time, they hadn't worked it out. But the film that I've got for you here was where one of the first well, it wasn't fully sound, but one of the first sound-based pictures, or pictures to involve sound, and it really sort of killed the silent era right underneath its feet. Uh, if you guys already know a little bit more about the silent era to talky era, as they were called, that transition, uh, you might be familiar with, obviously they mentioned this sort of transition in Singing in the Rain, uh, which is literally around 
silent pictures being killed off and talkies coming in and again obviously you might also be familiar with the 2011 film the artist as well that is a silent film about the silent era and also there's a little bit of a nod to it in the in the 1950s classic sunset boulevard with a silent movie star played by Gloria Swanson who is at the end of her prime uh, she still believes that the talkies are a waste of time and that proper acting was done in the silent days and this film was the one that kiboshed it all 1927 alan crossland the jazz singer now this has been remade several times there's been a 1980s version there's various other versions of this story this film uh, but this was the first one and it stars al jolson as our main character who ends up getting involved in let's just say in terms of the production of this there's a bit of a controversial i say controversial a very outdated uh, method of presentation in terms of a character's costuming, shall we say. But I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but yeah, like I said, it's the first talking picture. It's referenced in, directly in Singing in the Rain. It's a Warner Brothers picture, and it literally killed off this silent era and made way for the sound era. Uh, in terms of for those you techies out there, uh, it was the sound for this film itself was created through the sound-to-disc system, so a bit like how a vinyl works, uh, how you record sound onto a vinyl disc. You do it like that, a little similar-ish respect to that, because uh, they hadn't, obviously today we work with SD cards, digital files, uh, but they back then had to record the sound, like, like you do today, separately, but completely separately, and then match it with the picture on screen. Uh, whereas most silent films, they involve intertitles to highlight certain bits of dialogue which are more important, because obviously in the silent days you'd see someone miming some sort of what they would be saying and then on the screen would come on the intertitles to so little bits of texts between actual images moving images to say what the character had said or to indicate a certain feeling or emotion that isn't quite clear through the visuals although the visuals were mostly because they were like they were like mimes essentially they would do everything through expression through their bodies it's to be honest the silent era is probably closer to the theater than anything else in film history as it were unless you go for like films that are set in one place and you've got that theatricality touch like um like our friend billy said in the hitchcock episode but back to the jazz singer the jazz singer it's the first talkie so first sound picture but it is only partially so when i say partially it means that the sound was only used in isolated moments so for instance in various musical sequences particularly as i think there's a couple of dialogue based sequences that it uses uh, sound in but it usually is to make way for the musical sequences and particularly because obviously everyone loves a bit of music and the song and a dance uh, warner brothers sort of capitalized on this idea of getting tunes and music into the film and actually in the soundtrack on those actual key moments in the film whereas the rest of it would be like a traditional silent picture but kind of kind of not so it flitted between the two types so silent and talky but the fact was that they'd achieved sound picture before anyone else had at this stage and everyone was getting jealous slowly all the big studios um, MGM all of them they'd all get on board Warner Brothers Paramount the lot of them would all get on board and eventually silent films would be a thing of the past until obviously you get to stuff like uh, the artists which deliberately make a silent picture on purpose uh, to reflect that time and 
era. But like I said, The Jazz Singer is a landmark film for the 20s, but it's also tarred with a little bit of outdated, very much outdated uh, practice. So the character played by Al Jolson, it's more than one sequence. In several sequences, he uses the technique, the filmmakers made use of the technique known as blackface, where he literally gets painted, his face and everything else gets painted all over his skin in a black colour to mimic another race that isn't white. So essentially, it, so appropriating culture, trying to make it seem like he was of another race and another culture, but really he was just a white man beneath it. Uh, now obviously this is the part of the film that hasn't aged well at all because we do not do that sort of thing anymore. It's not something that should ever be done again. It's done throughout several sequences. I, I, I'm willing to sort of not overlook it, I acknowledge it, but I'm willing to overlook that for the fact that the jazz singer was the first talking picture. And that's why I put it at number five, not because of the blackface inclusion, but mainly because it is one of the earliest examples. Uh, it's shot like any other film would have been in the golden age. It's very static. It's very simple. Uh, it's very cabaret in some respects with some of the songs where they sit by the piano and they sing the songs. Um, and overall, the film isn't too bad a watch, other than the obvious things that I pointed out. If you want to watch The Jazz Singer, that's the earliest example of a talking picture. But moving back in time slightly now to my fourth pick. So, uh, so pick number four is a 1922 film directed by F.W. Munar. And it, this is, so we go from America to German. Now, I feel like a lot of these, I've re-looked at this, and a lot of these are European-based, half of them are European-based. Only really one of them is American. There's a silent picture from that era uh, that I've picked in this top five. Uh, but this one's from Germany and direct in 1922 and it is based on the famous the most famous vampire of all Count Dracula Bram Stoker's Dracula the 1897 novel and this film is Nosferatu now Nosferatu is it, it has a big history behind it i picked this one because i love the 1931 Dracula from Universal uh, Studios the monsters collection of films, so including The Wolf Man, The Mummy, all those ones. But I love Dracula 1931, and the tale itself is pretty much the sort of pinnacle of a monster horror movie kind of thing, the earliest sort of tale of old, along with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, but Nosferatu, it, it's a German film, and it's, it's always been slated as the unofficial and unauthorised adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which... It's, it is and it isn't, so there's a lot of debate about this, but I genuinely think that it does hold its own. It's not brilliant because it was a very, it's a fairly low budget film for its kind, even by their standards at the time, it was quite a low budget film, and lots of people tried to say that it was a rip-off of Dracula, it was unofficial, it was unauthorised. Um, it stars the silent movie star Max Schreck as Count Orlock which obviously is the substitute for Count Dracula, who basically the story follows uh, Count Orlock, played by Max Schreck, who gains interest in an estate agent's wife, uh, played by Greta Schroeder, and also some property as well. So it's kind of, there's little bits of the original Dracula story in there. So obviously he wants to purchase a property. He then becomes enthralled by the wife of 
a character that he comes in contact with. So obviously, John, obviously Jonathan Harker in the original, in Bram Stoker's classic novel and in the classic film, he is the sort of ticket, really, to England and into this high society world. But the ultimate sort of message of this really is it really wasn't because i've done my research on this one and i feel like lots of people say because in the intertitles because obviously this is a german film and there'd be english translations for these intertitles if it was sold abroad and such and in the translations and in the original intertitles they actually say the words the names and character of characters were originally stuff like count orlock and all the other names, they none of the names actually get referred to. Like, none of the original Dracula names from Bram Stoker's novel are actually referenced. So it is believed that, yes, whilst it is based on Bram Stoker's work, and Nosferatu is essentially... The other thing as well, Nosferatu is also often referred to not just by that name, but it's Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, because it refers to this vampire-like creature who is very, very daunting. I will post a picture probably on our Instagram of it as well, but it's he's truly gruesome he i i feel it's where things like rocky horror the rocky horror picture show got their inspiration from so richard o'brien's bald-headed riffraff a mixture of that and also from tv movie version of salem's lot the stephen king book the vampire look has always had this look that harps back to nosferatu a gray bold a gray-skinned bald-headed with really fang-like teeth and devil eye, piercing devil eyes. That's the sort of general look. Because obviously Count Dracula is very suave, and yes, he has the sharp teeth and everything like that, and he could probably turn into a bat as well. But he really sort of brought across this suaveness, shall we say, into the vampire legend. Whereas Nosferatu is very much, whilst he's dressed in a suit, and he's very, he's got lots of German sensibilities, he very much is a, like, a very unique character then. Lots of vampires as i said salem's lot the likes of such are taking their lead from the nosferatu character from the german film rather than the suave gentleman who is really a a vicious killer and drinker of blood that we are introduced to in bella lugosi's version and any other version afterwards so he's much more cannibalistic he's very buck-toothed and very evil and creepy and because it's in black and white this film it's very very eerie and of course this is a genuine silent film so obviously the only way you'd get words and stuff would be the intertitles and obviously for those of you guys wondering oh how do they get music in these things well usually these films were played in big theater halls uh, so essentially cinemas and they would have a pianist or some sort of little orchestra depending on what the needs of the film were and they would play along with the film live which is quite nice, really, because they have to, they actually do that nowadays with anniversaries. I know for E.T., they did an anniversary concert with John Williams conducting an orchestra playing the score live to the film. So they just play the film normally, and they just do it without the music. But they play the music live, and that's just what they used to do in the silent era. Uh, but yeah, so Nosferatu, it's definitely a... Sim- they call it a symphony of horror... It's a very creepy, very eerie film. It's German, so it will share a lot of similar visual traits with one of my other picks, which I'll get to in just a moment. But yeah, genuinely a delight in the sense that it's very creepy, very weird, very scary. Obviously, by today's standards, it's probably not as, I don't know, creepy, shall we say, as, say, or gory then. It's not as gory or as bloodthirsty as today's standards would be. But it's genuinely, for classic films, it was probably one of the most creepiest things of the time. But yeah, anyway, 
in at number three, I have Man with a Movie Camera by Ziga Vertov from 1929. I hope I've said that name correctly. It is a Russian-based film, experimental documentary uh, in Soviet origin, so 1929. Um, there were no actors used in this, it was just the Soviet public, and there were no intertitles either. It was very famous for not using intertitles, this one, because intertitles are said to have been overused too much. So the director in that, so Vertov in this case, he decided to not use intertitles and obviously there was no actors so it was just the general public uh, so a documentary probably one of the earliest documentaries well earliest documentaries after there's Nanook of the North which is a brilliant example of early silent documentary filmmaking which I highly encourage you to watch as an honorable mention but man with the movie camera it was so experimental for its time and so ahead of its time it was such a visual masterpiece so like I said it employed so many different techniques including split screen slow motion multiple exposure jump cuts and many more literally so many different techniques were employed in this it's literally like you could think of the rule book of filmmaking and just throw everything at it it would just it was all there and it's in it's a black and white film obviously because of the time color wasn't really a thing at the time especially in certain different countries they didn't all have access to color film at this point but the nature of this film it is a documentary and it kind of it's partially propaganda but partially not so it depicts the ideals of the soviet world and it verges on the lines of propaganda saying oh this is the ideal way of life in the way of the soviets and I, I don't know although it kind of borderlines on that propaganda nature of things i do feel that maybe that i don't know i think that the film is very very unique in the sense that it's very poetic then i would say that this is one of the earliest forms of poetic documentary filmmaking where it's purely just visuals and yes, you're showing different people and a way of life in a certain place and time. So you get that essence of being there and feeling like you're in the moment. But I feel like Man with a Movie Camera, I watched this as part of, I want to say I watched this for when I was in my early college days, before I got to university. I watched this and I truly felt it was a beautiful piece of filmmaking. Like, forget about the potential propaganda side of things. There's a lovely, lovely shots of... So you see the actual... Someone had obviously got another camera to film the cameraman filming everything. And he's on, like, in between two train tracks. And it, it's just lovely to see. It really sort of enforces that poetic documentary filmmaking that we might be used to today, where you don't necessarily... Even if you have a voiceover, it's all about the visuals. It's all about the look of it. And I just love it. It's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And I would say if I didn't have my top pick at the moment, this would probably be my sort of top documentary pick, early documentary pick. But like I said, visual masterpiece, very experimental. And you see so many like standard shots of people walking by, going about their daily lives, uh, going to shops and living their normal lives. It actually, I think, is actually more of a precursor for the Quatsi trilogy of films which were made by an American uh, in America in the 1980s up to the early 2000s which are purely visual based experimental documentaries which show like time-lapsed footage of the city uh, it, it all in color and it's a beautiful that's a beautiful film in itself but this one really is the precursor for that and I think it's worth a watch not even just for historical context because that's one reason to watch it but this I do feel that you should watch it with a good sense of 
if you want to learn about different filmmaking techniques and you want to see how they did them originally, this is a good one to start you off with because you watch this and you see all these different... Like, if someone tells you about different techniques and which ones to spot, you're going to be there for ages. It's going to, it's a real good film, I would say. So, number three pick for me is Man with a Movie Camera. So, number two, then, my second pick. I was toying between these two, and I genuinely, I love both of my top two picks. But number two for me is Metropolis, the Fritz Lang 1927 film. We're going back to Germany for this one. This is a one of the earliest works of science fiction filmmaking, and it's such a delight to watch because I say this about all of these, but this really is the precursor. So if anybody loves, I'll get probably mentioned this before as well, but Blade Runner, the 1982 Blade Runner, there's a building, I think it's the police headquarters, and I think they use it in the 2049 version as well, but there's a building specifically in the first one, which is very much reminiscent of the tall building in the citadel of metropolis and all the design cues and also there's dark city as well the 1998 neo-noir there's a building in that that looks very similar to this metropolis has a lot of things to give to films of the future it obviously paved the way for all sorts of science fiction so you know the likes of star wars blade runner obviously star trek any science fiction you can think of that involved robots or any sort of futuristic dystopian futures and societies this is where it started so i would say that definitely the, the this film is a gem in the sense that obviously it's german again germans i think were probably the best at their silent pictures because there was a movement called german expressionism which for my top pick i shall mention something a bit more about in a moment but they were really expressive with their imagery. Their imagery was very far out there. And this was one of the earlier films of Fritz Lang, the famous, brilliant film director who directed The Woman in the Window and various other American film noirs, including, obviously, his early forays into film noir, such as M, a very creepy, very eerie film about a child murderer from the 1930s. And Fritz Lang has always forever been a textbook director that if you learn about film, Fritz Lang will come up on your list of directors to check out for like the early history. Um, But I would say Metropolis is definitely his epic masterpiece and everything else afterwards, I think, was like standard and, you know, it was great, but this was his true masterpiece. And to think that I think it was over 25 minutes, half an hour or so, there was quite a large chunk of footage that was missing from this film for years and years and years and decades because of the fact that it had just simply been cut because it was said to have been too long at the time for global distribution. People, Audiences wouldn't respond to it. They wanted a shortened version. But thankfully, the 150-minute, or at least to some degree, 150-minute cut that's as close as possible to Fritz Lang's original design has been restored. I've got a personal Blu-ray copy. I've got the copy that's been created by and produced by Eureka, the entertainment company. Not a paid sponsor, but they're very good uh, for their classic films and restoration. And it was it's such a joy to watch it because although it's a silent film and, yeah, you've got a music soundtrack in the background... Uh, which has been put onto it, pre-recorded. You've got the silent film intertitles, so you have to read the the subtitles and everything like that. It genuinely is such a delight to watch because of the visuals. They say the best films and the best stories are the ones that if you turned the sound off, you'd still be able to 
tell what's going on and what the story was. And that's definitely the case with Metropolis. Metropolis is essentially about a future dystopian urban city landscape then. And it follows the story. Uh, so Frederer, if I've said his name correctly, uh, the wealthy son of the city master. And Maria, a saintly figure to which the workers worship. So there's a, there's a load of workers that work in a big massive factory. And these workers worship Maria, who's this blonde bombshell before even blonde bombshells were a thing she is the earliest example of like the star then not one of the earliest hollywood starlets but because obviously you get the likes of imports like greta garbo over in into hollywood in america but i think this the character maria she's originally a robot and then she gets turned there's a lovely sequence it's the famous sequence from the film where electric lights and waves go across this robot's body and she gets transformed into this woman. So the robot's turned into this woman, which all the workers of this dystopian world and in this massive factory worship. And it's kind of people against the system kind of story. That's essentially what it is, really. People uprising against those in power. Uh, that's the best way to sort of describe it. And obviously science fiction being a futuristic city with train tracks that look very very reminiscent of Gotham City in particular the likes of Tim Burton's vision in the 1980s slash 1990s particularly Batman Returns some of the architecture for his design work is very reminiscent of Metropolis and the same goes for the Dark Knight trilogy specifically in Batman Begins where you see this train car going across the sky in on this high rail subway rail and it's very much you, you can look at so many bits of architecture in films particularly cityscapes and you think they got it from metropolis and that's a little benchmark that it was and overall it's just a fun film it's really long admittedly but i think it's worth a watch definitely 100 percent. but now moving on to number one of my top picks for the 1920s is the cabinet of dr caligari directed by robert veen from 1920 again this is another german film uh, it's early like i mentioned german expressionism german expressionism laid the groundwork for the styles and sort of techniques that were used in film noir in the hollywood circuit in the 1940s up to the 1950s 60s because of the dark weird shadowy lighting the claustrophobia all these different feelings of condensement and everything like that it very much originates from German Expressionist cinema. And this is the most Expressionist of all because of the fact that it is it's very mad. And you'll understand why I say that in just a moment. So the film opens with a character called Francis. Uh, he sat on a bench with an old man. The old man complains about spirits who drive his family away from him and make him lose his house and all these different things. Then a young woman comes along. Francis then explains that that was his fiance, and that they were meant to get married and he sort of tells the st and she looks like she's sort of a bit lost and a bit confused uh, as they're sat in this park area anyway so then we go back to this flashback and we see the life of what we assume is how they got to this moment uh, and obviously dr caligari is uh, he's like a magician then he's a magician based character and he uses a what they used to call a somnab Bulist, uh, which is also another word for a sleepwalker. His name is Caesar, and he is part of Dr. Caligari's act. Francis becomes intrigued in this. He does a bit of investigating into this mysterious Caligari, along with his best friend, after seeing his show 
in the main area of the town. Now, I should give a little sort of nod. The stylistics of this, everything is shot on an, like Dutch angles as well, like sort of on a off just off angle. So if you I'll, if you sort of you're looking something straight on and you twist it. So it's slightly diag looking diagonally. That's sort of a Dutch angle. And I'll post a picture of that later as well in one of our posts. But The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, in terms of its production design, was such a groundbreaking film. And so the corridors that you see are very like, they're almost like one point perspective in some respects. And they've got very expressionistic artwork going throughout the wall designs, even the floors. They remind you very much of what would be the Yellow Brick Road spiral that you see in The Wizard of Oz. But obviously, this is all in black and white. So all of this imagination, it's amazing. I mean, there's loads of other techniques employed to it as well, but it's very expressionistic very out there and Francis is in this world everyone lives in this weird abstract world which is funny because the opening of the film looks more normal than the main part of the film which is very interesting considering where it goes now I'm going to spoil this just a little bit for you guys so if you haven't watched it pause this now watch the cabinet of Dr Caligari and come back to it but yeah Francis goes and to try and find out who Caligari is what his secret is and he then finds out that Cal Dr. Caligari is actually the director of an asylum. And he's actually been using uh, Caesar, the sleepwalker, as a test in his act. He's been te he's a patient in this hospital and he's been using him for his benefit. So then Francis then gets some help from the doctors and the, the other staff members. And they eventually get Caligari arrested uh, because and they convince him that he's mad. And because well, and he is mad. He even shouts at one point, "I will be Caligari," <laughs> or the intertitle says he shouts anyway. So he's mad. He's you know he's gone a bit off the rails, and they lock him up in this straitjacket, and we see him in this cell in this insane asylum that he was working at. But then there's a lovely with this film. This is the spoiler bit. I love this film because of the fact that it's probably one of the earliest twist endings. Because obviously you get things like spoiler alert. I see dead people from The Sixth Sense. Uh, you've got so many other twists. M. Night Shyamalan just loves his twist endings. And I think M. M. Night Shyamalan got a lot of his inspiration from the likes of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And so did many people who do twist-based endings because of their unpredictable nature. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But this one really blew me away. So after recounting all the events, you get back to the event, the present day, where Francis, this main character that we've been following throughout this entire story, you know, you don't really understand what's going on. It's like, oh, that's the moral of the story then. He just locked him up, so why do we care that he sat on a bench? And we then learn that everyone is actually in the asylum and that Francis is the mad one. We then get a repeater shot of that same shot that we had with Caligari being locked up in a straitjacket, but with Francis. Because Caligari, the guy, the, the man who's actually referred to by Francis as Dr. Caligari, is actually the is still the director of the asylum. And he's not the mad one. The person who's undergoing treatment for some sort of psychosis is... Francis and the other people so there's a girl called Jane who he says his is his fiance at the beginning of the film uh, she's just another patient 
and Caesar's a patient as well in the hospital as well, but he's not a sleepwalker. He doesn't suffer with sleeping problems. He's actually just quite a quiet, shy man, wouldn't harm anyone. And it's, so all these people within this asylum are all have all been compiled into his fantasy that he was the hero in the story, but he really wasn't. So that was the biggest twist ever. And for a 1920s audience, I cannot, I would have loved to have seen everybody's reaction to that film and that ending, the fact that, oh, it was all a dream all along and it was all made up by our main character. Our narrator was really unreliable. He wasn't a reliable source. And unreliable narrators will then become a thing of the future. So you're not always being led down the right path. So I think Cabinet of Dr. Caligari really does shine in terms of its beautiful expressionistic visuals and also through the misdirection of the audience because you're thinking one thing one moment and then you're thinking something another moment. And that's why it's my number one pick, because it's shot beautifully, great production design, weird, wacky and wonderful, but at the same time, very cool with the probably what would be known as the original twist ending. So I'm, you know, I can't say much more on that one. That's my number one pick, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So like I said, we ha I'll just do you a quick recap. So my top five films for the 1920s are The Jazz Singer, 1927, Nosferatu, 1922, Man with a Movie Camera, 1929, Metropolis, 1927, and finally, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 1920. That is my top five picks for the 1920s, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed those. If you've liked any of them, if you've seen them before, let me know what you think of them on our Twitter and Instagram pages. But for now, guys, I will leave you for now, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode where we will be talking all about the 1930s. Got five more great films for you, and I hope to see you there soon. Thank you very much, guys. That's a wrap on Take 97, the 1920s edition episode, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.